Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 6th. 2018, and my guest is Michael Munger of Duke University. This is his 34th appearance on Econ Talk. He was last here in October of 2017 talking about permissionless innovation. Mike, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be on Econ Talk. Our topic for today is traffic, or more accurately, perhaps traffic congestion, prompted by a recent article you wrote for Learn Liberty's website that we'll link to. And our jumping off point is the idea that some people have proposed that Uber and other ride-sharing companies should have to pay a congestion fee in cities like New York, arguing that drivers spend time cruising around looking for riders, and that slows everyone else down. This is what economists call a negative externality, and the argument is that by imposing a tax, Uber or its drivers, Lyft and its drivers, et cetera, will drive a little less, and that will reduce congestion, making people better off. Uh, What are your thoughts? It's such an interesting problem because, as you have often said, the phenomenon of traffic in the first place is interesting. Traffic is an emergent property of the desire of many people all to use the road at the same time to get to a place as fast as possible. And the result is we all end up going really slowly and hating each other. (laughs) So, I mean, people really get angry in traffic. Yes, Um, they do. But the, so traffic is the collective and unintended but perfectly understandable phenomenon that we're all trying to use the road at the same time. The question is, is there a way to allocate this scarce good more efficiently? And one of the things that's interesting about the problem of congestion is that economists always think that there's an efficient solution to the problem. And their idea of efficiency is that we use the price mechanism to allocate it so that the last person to get on is basically indifferent between using the road and not using the road. And if you raise the price, it means that the people who don't value it very much, they'll wait, they'll do something else, they'll take mass transit. And the people who really, really need it are able to purchase what they want, which is a relatively fast trip. So this notion was first introduced, the the notion of using uh, a price to solve the problem of traffic was first introduced, as far as I know, by William Vickery in a study that he did for the city of New York in 1952. And then he published a series of papers on it in 1968, one or later won the Nobel Prize. The, the notion that many economists take about congestion is that it's a problem of matching. How can we make sure that the people who want this the most are able to use it? And when I was thinking about this this morning, it struck me that there's a problem of exchange. And there's a, a very deep point that you made on a previous econ talk that I cite in the little paper in Learn Liberty that you uh said that you would put up. And in it, it's that using price is not exactly the same thing as creating a market. 
and the effect of taxing congestion. I mean, the problem with economists is that we often have this, it's almost a, a set of steps that we use automatically. If there's an externality, we should tax it. And if we have the right tax, the amount of the externality will be efficient and the problem is solved. You actually made an objection that it took me a long time to understand. I now think that I do understand it. And remarkably, I think you were right. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's rare. Go ahead. Uh, before you do, can, can I – although I, you know, I want to dwell on that last point as long as possible, and I hate to interrupt <laughs> you when you're in such an eloquent and profound – really, uh, set of insights about my just, insights. Just be, yeah, just because I said you were right, I understand. Yeah, enough about me. Let's let's talk about what why you think I'm right. Um, no, I, I want to back up just a, just a titch and remind listeners that the word efficiency when used by economists is not the same as its use in everyday English language. In everyday English language, it means sort of, I would say, effective or at lowest cost. There's a piece of that in the economics definition. But when economists say efficient, what they usually have in mind is the idea that the pie of economic well-being or benefit or benefit above and beyond cost, so what we would call net benefit, that that, that ben net benefit could be bigger if we put a congestion tax on. That's what we mean by uh, – efficient typically that the net gain across all people in the country or even in the world uh is grows and your uh point about i actually i think i have two only have two thoughts on congestion one of which you've made which is that prices do not a market make markets have prices but imposing prices don't necessarily recreate what a market does uh, it it can in theory, but doing that from the top down as an as an economics engineer is a little bit tricky. My second point is more about the distributional impact of, of that. But but I, I want to make the I want to actually go back to something you said earlier, which was uh, you said uh, there's a problem. There's too much um, use of the road, and the price then will limit the number of people on the road. Another way to look at the problem is that the road is unowned. Uh, it's effectively a commons. It's owned by all of us. So, of course, as you point out in the article, uh, it is rationed. It is rationed by a price. It's just not a money price provided by a seller it's a, or it's a group of sellers. It's the time price. So when it's not rush hour, it's these point, the conversation is not relevant or when there's not traffic. But when we're talking about traffic, which will be our presumption throughout most of this conversation, the fundamental problem is that is that the driver getting on the road doesn't take into account the fact that the other drivers will be slowed down. And as a result, too many people then enter the road. Uh, and as a result, there's a potential gain from reducing the number of people on the road. And my, my point, which is in many ways grows out of a point you've made well, many times about the challenge of choosing in groups. My point is that it's not so easy to fix that problem. <laughs> you may think it is, but it's not so easy. It isn't. And as I said, thinking about it, I want to emphasize both of the two points that you just made. One is the information problem and the other is the distribution problem. So um, this it may seem a little bit tedious to take a sort of deep dive into the philosophy of voluntary exchange, but it's something that I'm really interested in. So if you'll indulge me for a minute or two. Take your time. It, well, for 
a truly voluntary exchange, one of the reasons that economists are so interested in truly voluntary exchanges, it means that both parties to the exchange, if it's not coerced, are made better off by the exchange, which means that the, the voluntary part of it also has also has ethical consequences. So philosophers think of that as being an erogatory obligation, which means that in the normal course of things, I have it behooves me to behave that way. And in commercial activity, it means that an erogatory obligation means I am not obliged to harm myself. Now, a super erogatory obligation is charity or the Good Samaritan. So you see that I'm drowning. There's a life ring right beside you with a rope. You have a good, strong arm. It would be pretty bad of you not to throw it. But you're not obliged to get into the water to try to save me. So you're not obliged to harm yourself. So, Although it's, com- it would be nice if, in, it, if, it, I, went, if it, I sacrificed my yeah, time and put yeah. myself at risk. It's a, it's a different thing where we would say that person is behaving in a way that's very praiseworthy because the, the potential of sacrifice, I've given up something to try to help someone else. M- many of us would say that's that you, you, you are both loved and lovely if you behave that way. So it's a, the, but it's a, a different context than commercial activity, which is just erogatory. Now, let's think about the way erogatory exchange works. I have a widget that I value $1. You value that same widget at $5. Who should own the widget? Well, you could argue that you should own the widget. And the nice thing about markets is it provides us with two pieces of, uh, two, two parts of a process. One is the price tells us that you value it more because you'll pay five and I'll take one. The other thing is the distributional consequences are solved because you and I can negotiate a mutually beneficial exchange of, let's say, 250. You pay 250, you're better off because you'd pay up to five. I get 250 and I'm better off because I would take anything over one. That means that there's an actual exchange. The world is a better place because the widget moved to a higher valued use. Now, the question is can we use, can, we, can a central planner comes in and notices this and says, well, I can match that. All I need to do is make sure that resources are moved to higher valued uses. Problem is that the central planner lacks both parts of the process that we just talked about. Doesn't have price, has to make a guess about how much I value it and how much you value it. And since what is being taken from me and given to you is not compensated, the distributional consequences are potentially a problem. So when it comes to congestion pricing, I, the person that don't, I, my, the value of my time is not very high. I could sit home. I could wait. Suppose I'm going to go to the store. Or I'm thinking of going to the park. Uh, if the road is pretty busy, I might wait. But I don't mind waiting in traffic. The time of my value is not, the, the value of my time is not very high. So I go ahead and I get out there on the road. Problem is that contributes to congestion. The estimates of the amount of congestion that an additional car causes are between three and ten times the amount of the the, the cost that other cars impose on me. So the, there's a complicated process that uses simulations, but at, at a high congestion time, adding another car seems to impose higher costs on others than are those that are fully borne by the marginal car. I don't mind, though, because the opportunity cost of my time is very low, And so I go ahead and get out there. You have to go to a doctor's appointment 
or you have to go to give a lecture where you're going to create a lot of value and get paid quite a bit of money. You would love be your optimism. <laughs> I said value too. I understand well the. It, Keep going. Where I'm going to I'm going to create a lot of value. <laughs> the, the, there's there's a thousand people there waiting for you, Russ. Oh. <laughs> and they're they're looking at their watch and they're saying, Russ isn't here. And Maybe their breath the, their breath is bated. I don't know what that means, but I'm sure they're sitting there with bated breath. They're they're <laughs> it's because of traffic. They all think it's that darn traffic. You would happily pay for some people to wait. And there are people who, if you could pay them, would be willing to wait, but there's no way to affect that transaction. The mistake is to think that we can somehow approximate that with a congestion price. We don't actually know that the people who are going to pay this are the ones who have the highest opportunity cost value of time. The reason is, and this is kind of complicated, but that's the reason I went through all the other stuff. The reason is the last car to get on the road is the one that pays the congestion tax. But the marginal user is the one who happens to value the time least. Now, that person may already be on time the out. road. Time out. I, th- I, I, don't, I, I don't think that's right. I'm, I'm only, I apologize for interrupting, but I don't want to go down a what is, doesn't seem right to me, or maybe I misunderstood you. Uh, a congestion tax is imposed on all drivers at a particular time, not, not on a, the, not, not a dynamic one. A dynamic congestion price is only imposed once the congestion is bad. Right. I'm oh, sorry. Sure. So at 5 p.m., if you let's let's make it simple. Starting at 5 p.m., all cars pay a um, a dollar a mile um, premium, and we're going to avoid the uh, toll collecting problem, which we can now through technology. Right? Yep. We, we can all have Easy Pass, a fairly cheap, minimally cheap, uh, minim- minimal expense way to figure out who's on the road when. We're going to ignore the privacy issues that that raises. Uh, and we're going to say that we can monitor uh, that when people are on the road and for how long. So on my uh, in my city, Washington, D.C., we have such a system uh, on certain roads at certain times. Um, it's not all roads. But let's assume uh, – and it could change every day. It could be de- literally dynamic, dynamically yeah. dynamic. Uh, but yeah. I want to just assume that everybody knows that starting at five o'clock, there's a there's a surcharge of a dollar a, fi- a mile. That on, would be different on, from on a my particular example. road. So that's yeah, but, not what I was talking about. Yeah, I don't get your example. I've never heard anyone propose your example. What's your well, example? My example is actual dynamic pricing. So let's go all the way to dynamic pricing. So there's a bunch of people on the road already. And many of them have a low opportunity cost of time. Now we charge anyone who enters. These are entry fees. And there's a a lot of of cities that use these. For you to get on the interstate, you have to pay an entry fee because it's already congested. But you may be a high-valued user. All the cars that are already on there are low-valued users. That's what's causing the congestion. So the the point that I'm making is is actually quite a simple one. The, The question is, at what margin can we charge this? There's no efficient way to charge the low opportunity cost people if you have a dynamic pricing model, which people take to be the gold standard of congestion pricing. Now, what you said is we'll do it every day at five o'clock. Most economists would say that's second best, but it may solve the problem. 
because as you say, I know that five o'clock I'll have to pay for it. And if I'm a low valued user, I will avoid the road at that time because then it's an average, not a marginal cost problem. The, the, the pure dynamic one though. Yeah, go ahead. The, the, the dynamic pricing means that the road's already congested and because there was a zero price up until the point it was congested, many of the people causing the congestion are low-valued users. But I don't understand that. I mean, I literally don't. I, if um, if we only charge a fee for when the road is congested, that encourages people to get on the road before uh, and and start congesting the road earlier. There is yes. no difference between me who got on the road at 457 with thousands of other people. And then suddenly it gets conge- it just gets to the point, it piles up to the point where it's, the traffic starts to slow, its average speed starts to slow down. And then we say, okay, well, now if someone gets on, we're going to charge them. But I'm just as responsible for the externality as, as the person who's getting on now. I'm on the road, slowing it down, just like that person getting on the road now will slow it down. It doesn't seem right to me. I think, I don't, I think you have to charge all cars on, on efficiency grounds, which I'm going to fight against, but to accept the argument of the stand, what I think is the standard argument by economists on on road congestion is there there should be either. I mean, it doesn't help to put a tax. Let's you know, as, as as some cities have suggested, there's going to be a, and I think some cities have done this, a congestion fee if you enter the central city at a certain yep. time after right. a certain time. Well, what about the people who already entered? You mean they get off for free? That just encourages people to get on earlier. But that's that's my argument. That's okay. what they're doing. Explain that. Well, you just made the argument. You do understand it. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I'm so, so smart. I so can't smart. even understand my own argument. That's how smart I am. My argument's so clever. Yeah. I don't even understand it. I, 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 I think you've ahead. understood your version of my argument, which is interesting. Just not mine. But go ahead. I'm literally going to just repeat what you just said. There's a bunch of people already in the central city. That's what's causing the congestion. We're going to trigger congestion pricing once there's already congestion. That means that some of the people already there who didn't have to pay have a low opportunity cost of time. Now, you're saying you don't like that pricing Some might have a high opportunity cost of time. Yes, but but it's even mixed. the ones that even the ones that have a low opportunity cost of time, they the, the, it's already congested because we didn't charge them, and so the you're saying you don't like that pricing model. I don't disagree with you that we agree about that, but that pricing model means that we're working at the wrong margin. So the the margin that we want to do is to somehow enable the high valued users ideally to compensate the low-valued users, to say it would be better if you would wait. So in the case of the widget, I'm going to pay you. You actually receive it. I get it. We know that the prices work. It's a voluntary exchange. The question is, is there a a dynamic congestion pricing model that approximates that? Yeah, and it's just not – the one you gave certainly doesn't because – now I think I understand your point. You're saying that if I charge a fee after – the point at which the roads are congested, there are a lot of people on the highway already who people who aren't on the highway would be thrilled to pay to leave but and, and take their spot. Yeah. Let's make this clear. Let, let's say that past 10,000 cars on this particular road, uh, it, it starts to get congested. So as soon as it hits 10,000 and starts to climb above it, they put the congestion fee on. Some of the 10,000 are already there. Uh, are going to be uh, people that 
we'd be happy to be bribed to yep. leave, let someone else be one of the lucky 10,000. And uh, as a result of this congestion fee, uh, that's not going to work. That congestion yep. fee will not satisfy that requirement. Yes. That, to me, is not the problem. It's interesting. It's it's fascinating that, that that's what you learned from the all right, Congress, earlier conversation. Well, no, that's actually what I thought about this morning. And it turns out that's a problem that many people in this field worry about is that there's a kind of market failure because the people who want to buy less congestion can't pay those who will be willing to sell less congestion. Yeah, but that's – yeah, sorry. And it's, and it's all masked behind the fact that it's apparently a pretty reasonable thing to have a congestion tax based on the roads congested. Anybody who else who shows up now has to pay an additional entry fee. That just turns out to be a really bad idea. Oh, that's for sure. So so let's change it. Let's pick, instead of everyone, the next everyone else who shows up after this time, let's say everyone who's on the road at this time. And that solves solves the problem on the surface. I still think it's wrong. I'm going to argue why it's wrong, but that that's clearly a better tax than uh, just everybody who gets it on, on, before the uh, uh, time before the congestion starts is somehow uh, absolved from having to pay the tax because that just encourages them to get there a little earlier. So let's let the record show you went from saying I'm I'm completely incorrect to obviously right. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It- and, and that it's obviously right in a way that's boring, but I Correct. wanted to start. I wanted to start with baby steps. <laughs> there right. are there are cities that use this. Yeah, okay, that's fair clearly enough. wrong. Yeah. Is there a is, but is there a better well, I, model? Time out. I wouldn't say it's clearly wrong. I, to me, it's a, it's clearly not efficient in the sense that it does not guarantee that the highest valued people use the road. It doesn't even accomplish its own object. Because it, its own objective is to try to to match up. It's working at the wrong margin. So now we should go to more interesting pricing models. I agree. I'm, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I belabored that. It's all right. Uh, it's interesting. Go ahead. Well, so then let's suppose we have a better pricing model, and in it we will uh, either w- one way to do it is to start charging every day for higher prices when normally congestion hits. And that means that the people have a low opportunity cost of their time, knowing that we'll put off trips, they'll take mass transit, they'll do something else. And the people with a high opportunity cost of time will still pay it. And there's some hybrid versions of that. There's HOV lanes. Yeah. So you could have just one lane on the highway. Now, their HOV usually, since it stands for high high occupancy vehicle, you have to pay on a different margin. You have to get other people to ride with you. But we can also have, uh, it would be simple enough just to charge a higher price for one lane. Yeah. So you you could have a pricing model. And the the, um, uh, in Santiago de Chile, the Costanera Norte is a private road, effectively, that goes through the downtown. They charge pretty high prices all the time. There's alternative roads, but the Costanera Norte, Norte almost always, there's uh, there's very little congestion. And so it's a if you just pay extra, you can buy a, a lack of uh, of congestion. You, you can buy a faster trip. And I, so, I, I want to just – it's important to mention – you keep saying low and high values of time. Of course, it's the net value of the trip relative to the time that people are taking into account. So it's not just that the people with the highest value of time are the ones in the toll lane or 
who would go when the congestion tax was congestion tax is set. It's the people whose net value, the value of the trip itself, minus their opportunity cost of time, what they would be doing with their time otherwise, who 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 go right. It's not it's not just allocating according to the value of their time. Yes. The interesting thing about that is that one of the reasons that they because this is the money value of my time. And one of the problems is that our mythical planner who came in and thought, okay, I can use a tax system in effect to approximate the good results of voluntary exchange is that the sort of utilitarian consequences of this will be positive because it's as if I bought this, I who value this a lot, bought it from someone who valued it much less in money terms. So that was the reason I was talking about the opportunity cost of time is that the, there's a sort of mythology that it, in effect there's a kind of transaction that's taking place. But there's not. This is something that's only taking place inside the mind of the planner who's using a kind of utilitarianism. That is, the people who have low opportunity cost of time, it's okay that they sit home. And that really was the heart of your objection uh, in the, the podcast a few years ago, the Winston podcast a few years ago. You can't know that because there's a couple of dead weight losses. One dead weight loss is the dead weight loss that a high explain time, explain what dead well, weight loss is. Well, dead weight loss is a loss that is just dissipated. It's not a transfer. So if I have to pay you something, I lose, but you gain. If I just sit in traffic or I wait in line, then the value of my time is just burned off into the atmosphere. So I could be uh, producing something. I could be making something for society. I could be enjoying uh, maybe going for a walk in a park. But some value is foregone. If I sit for an hour in traffic, I burn up an hour of my time and no one receives the benefit. And so economists, you good. Economists call that a deadweight loss. And, and for listeners who might have the following thought, I think this is really important. You might think, well, you're not going to waste your time in traffic. You're going to be listening to Econ Talk. <laughs> and what that means, though, is that the amount of traffic there's going – if everyone can listen to Econ Talk or unimaginably, but it does happen, other podcasts or read uh, – listen to a book on tape or listen to some other podcast, then the time cost of travel goes down. Yeah. And therefore, more people will be willing to get on the road because it's not as unpleasant, which means it has to be a long enough trip to make it, even with econ talk, somewhat unpleasant. That That's what congestion does. Congestion rations access uh, via the fact that you burned time. And you say, well, you won't waste it. You'll You'll shave in the car and you'll put on your makeup and you'll listen to econ talk or books on tape. That just means that more and more people are going to get on the road because that otherwise the road's underpriced through uh, time. It's not it's not being allocated. People will find it. In other, I want to didn't say that very well. If if it's pleasant to travel, that just means more people get on the road. And at times of congestion, when people, more and more people would like to get on the road than there is space available. The opportunity to do things that make the time go by actually just means that you're going to be on the road longer. 
Yeah, because the disutility, the, 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 how much I dislike being on the road is reduced. Knowing that I'm going to be on the road, I'll plan for that. And there certainly are a lot of things that cars are more comfortable. Uh, the, the control that we have of the, the air inside that is better. It, it, it really is true that longer commuting times, we're likely to come up with ways to make that less painful, which reduces, it's true, the dead weight loss. But the point that you made. No, it uh, doesn't. It doesn't reduce the dead weight loss. That's my point. It has to persist because otherwise, there's no um, oh because no allocation going on. I, let me let me give a goofy example. Um, the good example I use in class is that I'm going to give uh, an A plus to the first five students. I'm going to give all the answers out to my exam. It, it I have, let's say I have an exam coming up on Friday, and on Thursday night at midnight, I'm going to give out uh, the answers to the exam to the five the first five students who are outside my door, and is a stupid example. It's immoral. Forget all that for a moment. But the idea is that there's some group of students in the class who are worried they're going to get a bad grade, who don't have time to study. There's a lot of motivations, and they're going to show up at midnight to get those to get those answers and get a guaranteed A plus. That's the goal. So if I do that, and let's say there's 500 students in my class, if I do that, how many people are going to wait in line? And the answer is five, because the sixth person realizes they can't get anything. It's only room for five people. That's the deal. That's my offer. So what happens? Well, you have to get there early enough to be one of the first five. So let's say, when would that be? Well, the first year, who knows how it'll be. But let's say after a while, there become, it becomes known that if you get there by 2 o'clock on Thursday, even though uh, the gig's not given out till midnight, you'll be one of the first five. And, and that turns out to be the general pattern. And then after, after a while, I feel bad. After a few years, I say, you know, it's terrible. These kids have to sit outside the room uh, for 10 hours with nothing to do. Uh, it's, just, it's just cruel. I'm going to put out some really nice armchairs, and they'll give them a massage while they're sitting there, and they'll be really comfortable. I'll put a drink holder in, and I'll show movies. So that way they won't waste their time for 10 hours while they're sitting there. And if I do that, they'll just get there earlier. It won't have any effect on the deadweight loss. <laughs> it, they'll just get there early enough now to be one of the first five when it's relatively pleasant, which is before two o'clock. Now, I might have to get there the night before uh, or two nights before to be one of the first five. So I, I don't I don't think that affects the deadweight loss. Well, you're right, but you just skipped over the intervening step. Knowing I'm going to, I was trying to do it in two steps. Knowing I'm going to have to, to wait in traffic, I'm going to get a more comfortable car. I'm going to have a phone that's full of econ talk. And yes, it's probably true. Other podcasts as well. But the, the, So the result of that is that I'm then willing to wait even longer in traffic. I'm less concerned about traffic. And it ought to be at the same margin. The deadweight loss ought to be the same. It's just that the the cost to me per minute of being in traffic is reduced by my anticipation of this. But overall, yes, the deadweight loss will be the same. It just takes two steps to get there. Good. What I what I think we're ignoring, what I think that some of this uh, the the consideration, which is what you had picked up in the earlier podcast, if someone wants to go to the store, wants to go to the park, needs to get to work, but the congestion pricing prevents them from doing that. That's a dead weight loss, too, because those are trips that are not taken. That is, I don't go to the store. I stay at home. I sit at home instead of doing the things that I want to do because now the price has gone up. I'm not compensated for the fact that something useful is being taken from me. So 
the you can say it's a low valued user or maybe it's just a poor person who can't afford to pay the price in an, in a market that works out to be the same thing they don't objectively in terms of utility have a low opportunity cost of time they just can't afford to pay the congestion tax the result is that dead weight losses are imposed on them and the hard thing is to balance the dead weight losses of sitting in traffic compared to trips not taken Lives not lived because the some people can't afford to pay the congestion tax. That doesn't mean it's a terrible idea, but it's not the same as a market. So in, in a way, the point you were making was quite simple, and it just never occurred to me before, and I wanted to give you credit for it. I have no idea what you're talking about. So interesting. I, I don't know if anyone's still listening to us, Mike. I'm always happy to talk to you, you know, even if we were just on the phone ch- ch- chit-chatting. And I don't know if we've lost all of our listeners, but what I or, or whether there's – Others who have just raced to their phones to hear this because it's so interesting. Uh, I'm hoping it's the latter, but I'm fascinated by the fact that that is not at all what I meant. And I, this is a different point than than we got uh, tangentially uh, discussing earlier. Uh, I'm going to try to make what I consider my point, and then we're going to see how it interacts with your point. Actually, this morning when I was preparing for this, I said I fully expect an Annie Hall moment where I say, well, this is what was for Russ Roberts meant. And Woody Allen pulls out Marshall McLuhan and says, no, no, <laughs> here's what he really meant. You're an idiot. Yeah, at least it's not the point where my um, my uh, payas are growing at the dinner table. But um, it's just a Yiddish reference for those of you keeping track at home. But so here, here here's the way I think about this. And I, I love your – the idea of the exchange part of this. And I wrote a piece uh, – a long time ago about about it's gonna we're gonna come full circle to all the mongerisms of of past econ talk episodes uh, you and I have spent I think at least two episodes talking about price gouging and and my point about price gouging is that one of my points is that when prices rise the example I give is that I that I was going to build a porch at my house in St. Louis and I, my architect the guy who built up the plan said it's going to cost whatever he said I think we were trying to spend – I wanted to spend something like, say, $10,000. And then uh, the bids all came in at like thirty, And I was kind of annoyed that the architect – I felt he had taken advantage of me. He had encouraged me to hire him to drop some plans for a project that I had said I would do if it was in the 10000 ish range. But now he was off by factor three. And then I realized, being a slow-witted economist, but an economist nevertheless, that the reason it was thirty instead of ten is that there had been – uh, a flood. The the Mississippi had flooded. Carpenters were in high demand, and building a porch was not nearly as valuable to most people as re- putting back a wall that had fallen down. And so carpenters charged a premium. And as a result of that, I said, you know, I'm going to wait to do that porch. I'm not going to do it, actually. And when I realized it was because of the storm, I thought, well, I'll try again in 18 months. And it was more like it was 12 or whatever it was, or 18. It was something more reasonable. Uh, to me, but for somebody whose house was falling down, they were thrilled to pay a premium to get that wall put up by a carpenter. So what the price does in that setting is it encourages me to step aside. Basically, the the person whose wall has fallen down pays me to – not pays me, but I am induced to forego using the carpenter and let the carpenter go to the higher valued use of the person whose house is falling down rather than just adding a porch, which is pleasant but not or not very important relative to a house. Oh, we agree on that, right? We're good? Yes. Okay. Sure. Now, 
I didn't think of this the way you're thinking of it in the in the context of congestion. The way I think about it is as follows, and it's nothing like the way you think about it, uh, even though you quote learned it from me. But I think there's I think I know why. I think I see why we diverge. So here, here's my point about the congestion pricing. I like to start with a world where everyone has the same value of time. But we differ by, say, the value of the trip we're taking. Okay? So what's going to happen when we put um, a tax on is that we're going to make the road, quote, more efficient. It's going to mean that uh, the time spent is going to be less, which is great. Uh, what it, But my claim is, is that in that world – and this comes – this is very unintuitive to most people. In that world, most economists, in that world, every driver is worse off. Every driver. Every driver plus the people at home. The people at home are worse off because they don't take the trip now. The people who are on the road are worse off because they're paying a tax. And you might say, oh, but yeah, but they save time. And my point about the tax is that it has to be the case in some sense – that the pain from the tax has to outweigh the gain from the savings in travel time. That is, you might think, well, yeah, who knows whether you're better off or worse off when you take the trip. In fact, you're probably better off. You took the trip, and obviously you got there quicker than you would have. That's the purpose of the tax. It took out the congestion. And so it's true you had to pay the tax, but you got there quicker, so you're better off. And that's false. That's basically false. Basically, why I'm hand-waving there, maybe not worth explaining, but we'll see. But my point is, is that the whole point of the tax is to discourage people from getting on the road. And therefore, the people who – it has to be the case that the, that the pain from the tax paid has to be larger than the gains from the fact that it takes a shorter time. Then you say, well, oh, but that's not efficient. And the answer is yes, it is, because that you could, you could argue, well, you didn't set the tax right. And I would say, no, you exactly ex- – that has to be the case under a correctly set tax because the efficiency gain, the net gain to all of society comes from the fact that the money collected from the tax can go to be used for some other purpose. So when we look across society after the tax is put on, drivers are worse off. But the people who get the benefits of the money are better off, and that gain has to be larger. And that's true. You can show that with a with a graph. But it doesn't accrue to the drivers. It accrues to, quote, someone else. And then people say, well, let's just give it back to the drivers then. And the answer is once you do that, you're going to start to undo the incentive effects of the tax. Oh, we'll do it in a lump sum fashion, so it doesn't affect incentives. Well, it's really hard to do that. It's almost impossible to do that. And it's really hard to do with any accuracy. Now, in the real world, of course, people have different values of time. So there will be drivers who are better off. The people who have very, very high values of time or higher than average values of time or higher than median values of time, depending on how you make assumptions you'd make, those people are going to be better off because for them, that small group, their value of time is so high that the tax is not going to be large enough to offset the gains from the less congested road. But for everybody else, they're just worse. They're punished by this by this law, and they don't get 
compensated for it. So what you've done, in my view, with the congestion tax is you've made, quote, society better off in a utilitarian way. If you added up all the gains and losses, the gains would outweigh the losses, but you'd have just arbitrarily punished a bunch of people to create this net gain for some others who happen to get the benefit of what the government spends the money on. And that just seems to me to be immoral. Maybe not any more immoral than most taxes, but no less is your point. It, it's just a tax. And the other argo bargle about benefits and distribution isn't right. It's really just a tax. And we should think of it that way. And if that's the best way of raising revenue, well, okay, but it depends what you do with the money. Usually the argument, as you know, is we'll use the money raised from the congestion tax to uh, subsidize or expand mass transit, which should benefit those who now no longer can afford to use the roads. So there's, we have better buses, we have better subways. So I think that would be the answer that it, it does matter what you do with the money. If what you do with the money is... I'm thinking food stamps, expand the food stamp program or build better schools or um, pay old people retirement, uh-huh. higher, higher social security benefit. Yeah. Right? Old people would benefit. It's like who would ever imagine advocating for the following. You know, there are a lot of people with low value of time. Let's tax them to pay for social security benefits. You'd say, well, that seems wrong. Yeah. <laughs> that That's almost as wrong as, I don't know, uh, say using lotteries to fund schools. Uh, we're going to take people who are desperate for money, who probably dropped out of school and use their, their pitiful money that they, that they're, that they're spending on their lottery tickets to help people who, Oh, it just seems bizarre. But that's, yeah. I think, what we're doing with roads. And I think we're under the illusion as economists that when we say, oh, it's efficient, that, oh, well, and that means everybody's better off. No, it means everybody could be made better off. But in reality, they won't be. So is it moral then to impose a congestion tax? Well, it is an interesting question that at what sh- what should be the price of roads? And most the efficiency condition for price is usually price is equal to marginal cost. If there's no congestion, marginal cost is close to zero because I maybe there's some wear and tear on the road. Big trucks probably impose some of that on the road, but cars largely marginal cost is zero. The problem is with congestion, you say that there is something. Uh, that I'm imposing some cost. It's not clear that we can figure what that price is. Your your point about the tax is an interesting one. The the thing that the article took up was congestion pricing on the island of Manhattan. And in particular, I actually got some uh, responses to this. I I solicited some uh, answers from readers. And the question is, Suppose that we agree that there's a problem with congestion on Man- the lower part of Manhattan. Should is, is some kind of congestion tax uh, an answer? And what, of course, the some people in Manhattan say, particularly taxi drivers, the yellow taxi drivers, what they want to do is impose a congestion tax on Uber and other ride-sharing services. They say at the margin, what's causing this is all these ride-sharing cars. And when you look... It's well, there's there's 60,000 Uber drivers that sometimes drive in Manhattan, and there's probably between 15 and 25,000 most days. And that's compared to 13,500 or so yellow taxis. So 
the let's go to a third pricing model. We've talked about two. One, just the marginal drivers. One, have a congestion tax generally. Should we tax some groups who at the margin have less of a right to use the roads? Is there some, because the, what the taxi drivers are claiming is that the, the, the right the ride-sharing services have less of a right than the taxi drivers, and they ought to have to pay a tax to offset that. Yeah, I, my first thought, of course, is that I don't think traffic in New York started in 2009. Has it? I don't know. Yeah, it has gotten worse. Uh, it's, so measurably, it's an empirical it has question, gotten, right? Yeah, right. But empirically, it has gotten worse. Now, one of the big problems is uh, double parking. So even a little bit of double parking at rush hour is a big problem. And a lot of the ride sharing, because if I drive around constantly, I'm using up gas. There's no place to park. And so it is true that the the big problem that you have is there's a delivery truck at 430 on one of the big avenues or a, an Uber car is double parked or parked in a way that slows down traffic Presumably, you could uh, just enforce the the parking laws better and prevent double parking. But the, what the it's what the taxi either. company well, what the taxi companies want to do is impose a, a differential congestion tax. And what what that made me think about was the sort of history of the taxi industry. And I don't know how deep you want to go into that, but the taxi industry in New York has a very interesting history. And the fact that they use these medallions was because, the I think most of the listeners probably know, in order to drive a taxi in lower Manhattan, that is one of the yellow taxis, not one of the green borough taxis, but a, a, yellow, a yellow taxi, you have to have a medallion. And the medallions, the price for a while was up over $700,000 for one medallion. They were established in 1937 because there were so many taxi cabs and so many people were trying to drive so many hours a day during the Depression that partly for congestion reasons, but partly to make sure that the taxis could make, they would say, a decent living, they restricted the number of taxis that could drive legally. So this is this is the legacy of a time from during the Depression when prices were quite low. The result was that the number of, uh, I think the number of medallions was 16,000 the medallions were not even valuable enough to pay the $10 annual fee to renew them. So about 3,000 people just let their medallions lapse. Now we're down to about 13,000. They had a couple of auctions with the, where the value was pretty high. But now the medallions are extremely valuable. And the price of a taxi in New York is not that high. They're, the density of use, if you compare it to other cities, uh, taxi rates in New York City are not unreasonably high. Why not just use the medallion system? Why allow Uber at all is the question that the taxi drivers would, would ask. You're saying that we have a problem with congestion. We paid for our medallions. Isn't the solution just to outlaw anything that doesn't have the medallion? Isn't that the solution? Forget this congestion tax. What we need instead is this third model of better regulation. I mean, it's well. There's no reason to think that thirteen thousand six hundred is the right number of medallions to have in the city. It's as you would be the first to point out. It's the 
result of a political process, not an economist trying to figure out what the right number is. Obviously, the taxi cab drivers like it this way. They, it's easier for them to find rides, and they are able to fill those rides at the prices that the taxi commission sets, which, as you say, they're not unreasonable, but I think Uber is cheaper. Uh, well, it, it, Uber must be cheaper net. The, the time spent waiting, the inconvenience of giving directions, the inconvenience of paying, or otherwise people wouldn't use Uber so much. So the, 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 they really do use Uber a lot. And I, I raised the question about um, the empirical question of whether traffic's gotten worse because it's very po- – there are two thoughts I have, which I hadn't thought of before. W- one is it's possible fewer people are driving around in their own cars because they don't have to have them anymore. Um, they're using Uber. They're not parking them on the street. There might be more uh, parking available in general because people don't use cars as much because they can trust Uber and it's relatively cheap. So you'd think that would the, – the access to ride-sharing would reduce the number of cars at least owned in New York. doesn't necessarily reduce the number of miles because now with the lower price, you might drive more. It's complicated, you know, of course. Um, the second point is – I wonder if Uber has an incentive and Lyft and others to take account of congestion in, when they set their prices. Because well, surge pricing, surge pricing, we think of surge pricing as a, um, okay, demand's higher and, and it's raining or it's rush hour or it's after a concert's gotten out in some particular part of town. And so they're surge pricing because it's there aren't enough people willing to drive relative to the increased demand. And Uber then raises the price that drivers can get and charge. Uh, they get a share of that. So that um, helps ration the shortage. Uh, but it could be the case that wouldn't they wouldn't they not want to slow down their own drivers, which which <laughs> I mean, obviously, they don't, they don't have a monopoly. They don't own the roads. So they don't have a full incentive to internalize that externality. But you think it might have some. There, is, there are a lot of mysteries in Uber's algorithm for deciding price. And I don't think anyone it, – it's proprietary. No one's announced what it is. Uh, perhaps – well, they, they, they like a taxi. If you sit in traffic for a long time without moving, you're also charged for that. So that, that is part of the algorithm. On Uber, but that means that I'm more likely as a passenger, as we've said before, to try to find some other way of riding, including uh, walking if necessary or taking the subway. So if the surface roads are really, really congested, I may try to take something else. It's interesting that the origin of taxis in New York, I actually had wondered why it was that the the taxi industry had developed the way that it did. And you may know this story, but in 1907, apparently, uh, a man took a taxi in which he was disgusted with the the price. So apparently it was about uh, three quarters of a mile. He took a taxi three quarters of a mile and was charged five dollars. Now, I tried to investigate how expensive $5 really was, and it turns out that a full meal at Delmonico's, one of the most expensive restaurants in New York, would have been about $2.50. So it's the equivalent of $125. He was charged $125 in 2018 dollars to uh, for a, a handsome cab, and he decided that he would start a taxi company. Almost immediately, he started having labor troubles. So the... The, the regulation of taxis in New York has a long and contentious history. The taxi drivers, I, I actually wonder if it's something like, in terms of industry structure, if it's something like um, 
monopolistic competition. And so that that actually raises the question you just did about Uber and its pricing model. Uber isn't a monopoly, but they do have a monolithic pricing model. They should be able they have to a solve large this. impact on the can, and it's di- on the dynamic. They can update it. They can yeah. update their pricing. So monopolistic competition, what happens is you get entry where I don't I don't serve much, but locationally I can serve the people that are around me. And monopolistic competition is something that was made up first by Joan Robinson at, at Cambridge University. And restaurants or other things that have uh, local monopolies work that way. I had wondered, and it's interesting that you brought that up about Uber's pricing model, don't they have some incentive for solving the congestion problem? And they might, the taxis, the problem with taxis is they're locked into a pricing structure. Correct. They're, they, they can't change their price. Uh, it's always the same, which means that sometimes the price is too high and people who would pay more than the cost of giving a ride still take the subway because the taxi can't cut its price. And sometimes during the a rainy night or after the, uh, the plays let out or a sports event, a lot of people would pay more, but there aren't they can't do that so taxis can't adjust dynamically uber has in a way a better pricing model i uh, that was all just a long way of wondering if you're not right might uber account for the fact that there's a uh, an entry problem that they want to worry about and congestion harms everybody why don't they charge a little bit higher price i i just don't know i i haven't seen any evidence that that's true i mean the point being that if you had private roads and it was a it was easy to start a new road. It's not obviously, but if it was easy to start new roads, and if you can think about flying, if you can think about lit, putting roads on top of each other, it's like the greatest econ talk ever, Mike. You know, <laughs> it's got more. Let's assume let's assume a can opener. It's got so many of those, but I, they're actually good ones in my view. But that's what an economist would say when they make a ridiculous assumption. So let's you know, if we had different roads and we could just build a road on top of one another. It goes from point A to point B, but doesn't uh, interfere, which you can't do. But if you could, uh, and then you, you let people do that and enter, then there'd be privately held roads, and none of those roads would have congestion. The point being that when you wait in line at the supermarket, in general, that's, as you pointed out earlier, that's thrown away time. They don't want you to wait in line. The reason they, that you do sometimes wait in line is there's surges of of demand that they can't anticipate. The ones that they can such as people coming in between right after work, it's very expensive then to hire an extra person for just a short period of time. So they can't easily solve that problem. But in general, stores don't have long lines all the time. That just doesn't make sense. It means they should raise the prices of all the goods a little bit even, if, yeah. they, if, that, if that's the case. But I, I want to I go back to the point you made earlier, because I made a long speech about 10 minutes ago, and you responded by changing the subject. Uh. <laughs> and that's because you're very polite, uh, <laughs> which is very impressive. But, but, but I actually wanted you to, to push back on that. And, and, and since you didn't, I'm going to push back on it with what I, just, what I learned from you earlier in the, in the podcast. Because I, I wanted to reconcile the way you were thinking about this, this congestion problem with the way I think about it. So in my model, my way I'm thinking about it, it's like, well, everyone's kind of got the same. Let's just start with this can opener assumption. If you don't know what I mean by that, just Google economist jokes and can opener in <laughs> Desert Island. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this economist simplifying assumption. Everyone kind of has the same value of time to show that when I put the congestion tax on, everybody's worse off. 
people who don't drive and the people who do drive. They've all been punished a little bit, and the gains are being captured by whatever the government spends the money on, whether that's uh, food stamps or Social Security or uh, improving the sewer system or whatever it is. And since uh, the tax falls heavily on one small group, drivers or would-be drivers, that seems uh, unfair, immoral, not so attractive, even though it adds to the net benefit to society. And that's why I'm not a utilitarian. One of the reasons I'm not a utilitarian, I don't like that trade-off. I don't think that's what government should be in the business of doing. But your point was, the way I understood your point was, well, but people have different values of time. And what what's actually happening when you put a tax on is you're persuading some drivers to give up and stay home. And normally in a market, and this I think is very deep, and I, I, this is something I, did, I didn't appreciate. In a market, the people who want something badly – Compensate the people who don't want it as badly. That's your widget story. Yeah. You make the widget. You're willing to accept. It costs you 50 cents to make it. You're willing to accept, given the value of time to sell it. You're willing to accept. I think you said a, a dollar. Did you say a dollar fifty or a dollar. I think a dollar. A dollar. And I love widgets. And I've got. I'm willing to pay five. So two fifty, three dollars, any price in between, a buck fifty at five. You and I are both going to be better off. And I'm compensating you effectively for giving up the widget. What happens in the road case, because it's not a market, this is what I, this is the the humor of this is that you claim you learned this from me. I didn't understand your point. And this is what I think, this is where I'm learning what you learned about from what I said that you learned from me that I learned, (laughs) (laughs) which is that when you put the tax on, nobody's being compensated. Not the people who stay home, but not the people who drive either. So I'm the – let's say I'm the high value of travel, meaning it's really important for me to take the trip, and I have a high value of time. So even though there's a congestion fee, I get on the road. I don't compensate anyone who got who chose not to go on the road. I think that's your point, yeah. and that's very deep. I'm also adding the point – the reason I was reacting so so strongly in my monologue a few minutes ago is that, yeah, but I'm not getting compensated either. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting punished too, but there will be people who are not punished, who are better off, who have high value of travel and very high value of time, and they have – the tax induces other people to get off the road so that they can enjoy that road with their high value of time and not be punished by a lot of congestion. And what you're saying is is that that's not the way it usually works with an exchange. Does that, is that right? Absolutely. And it, it's the, the fact that we use, that the people who advocate for this use a sort of exchange-based language. We want to make it efficient. And as it is, what we want to do is deter the people who have a low opportunity cost of time so that the people with a high opportunity cost of time can use money to buy their way out of the dead weight loss of having to wait in line, in traffic. And it's not an exchange. It, just as you said, the people who have, because of the high price of the congestion tax, if they don't drive, they're staying home. And that should be a dead weight loss that we account for also. They're not being compensated. In the exchange metaphor that we started out with the widget, and again, this is what you just said, that means that, yeah, I don't have the widget anymore, and that makes me sad. But I'm only sad a dollar, but I'm happy 250 so I'd like to have the 250 and the widget, but I'm pretty happy to give you the widget and have the 250 in payment. That's not what's happening with the congestion tax. It's just a, a net loss to me. I'm I'm not being compensated, and I I think that 
not taking trips, not going to the park, the things that people who, because of the tax, now it's not worth it for them to undertake the trip, should at least be counted. Now, usually we count that in terms of ability to pay. And so I guess I'm making sort of a, a, a point that many of our friends on the left would often make. What we're really doing is not valuing the, the, the we're not rationing by value of time. What we're doing is rationing by the ability to pay. And so rich people are going to be the only ones who use these roads at a time when there's a congestion tax. And that's the objection that if you look at the cities where that use congestion tax, so Singapore, London, Milan, Stockholm, that's the objection that everyone makes is well, only, only wealthy people are using this road. That might be okay if they were compensating the people that were being kept off, but they're not. But my point, which is a variant of this, is that there will be some poor people on the road that, who really want to use the road yeah, at that time because they have right. to get to work. So they and use they actually, the road. And they benefit from that, actually. Not because this, well, they don't. My point is that they might not because they have to pay the tax. And that offsets some of the gain that, that taking the trip had. And it's true they get there quicker. That's nice. But the tax is very large to get enough people off the road so that it's not congested. It's not obvious that they're going to be yeah. better off. Well, not compared to the old system where they would have been on the road anyway, not pay the tax and have to wait longer. A little in longer, they, but they have low value of time. So, yeah, and, and that, but that's no longer available to them. Correct. That's taken away. So, so I want to go back to the widget example because I think that really um, helps me see your point, which is that what a congestion tax is like is the government comes – and then I th- it is a little more complicated than this, but it's close – what a congestion tax is like is the government comes along and says to the guy with the widget, you know, I don't think you value that that highly. I'm going to give it to this other guy. <laughs> yeah. And and then the guy who made the widget doesn't get any doesn't get compensated. The guy who who gets the widget gets to enjoy it, but actually we're going to we're also going to make the guy with the who gets the widget pay a tax also. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll pay a tax. Yeah. We're going to take it we're going to he's sorry, he's going to it's 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 more like this. He's going to pay the $5. In fact, he's going to pay a little more than five dollars, uh, not a little more. Excuse me, he would have paid two fifty in the private equilibrium in yep. the market. Now the government charges him four. He's still better off. He still t- he's happy to get the widget, but we t- the government takes the four dollars, doesn't give it to the guy who made it, and um, the guy who made it and the guy who gets to enjoy it are both worse off than they were before. Yep. The difference is is that there's no supplier in the case of the road. Except the government, in some sense, there's no resi- what we would call in economics the residual claimant. In the case of the widget, we all understand that if widget owners, widget makers, don't get paid for making widgets, they're going to do something else. That's not going to work for very long. So that's a no one thinks of that as an attractive option, at least literally. Oh, well, let's just take the we'll just confiscate the expropriate the stuff. Most people realize after a while that doesn't work so well. Some don't realize it for a long time, but in general, the the, the market system maintains that incentive for the supplier to make the stuff. The road's a little trickier because there's nobody profiting from the road directly. There's nobody who's owns the road to collect the toll. The government does. And so to the extent that the government, whatever you want to call the government's decision-making process, we know from our previous conversation about choosing in groups in your book that that's a complicated phenomenon. It's not simple to say, oh, the government will just make this decision or that decision. Depends what the institutions are. It depends how the political power of people who are have high value of time, political power of the people who get the money spent on them ultimately, 
it's it's going to be it's going to be messy, right? But it's clearly not like a supplier who gets a profit and has an incentive to make a great product. Yep, and I I I had not realized that I should, but I will from now on object to the the sort of metaphor that was used as if it was an exchange because though in preparing for my notes it's eerie actually in preparing my notes for this i actually had written out the second part of the example of the widget a social planner shows up and says all right i think you value it one and you value it five and let's suppose she's really good at it she actually gets it right yeah the police come to your house and take the widget from the person who values it one they give it to the guy who values it five but they charge him four for the service that's not an exchange. Yeah, They're actually both worse off than they would have been if they could have made an exchange. Now, you can say, and I think this is right, a difficulty is the transactions costs are so high, there's no way that they could have found each other and made the exchange. I cannot find an individual or the five individuals I need to pay to stay off the road so I can go quickly. So the exchange isn't possible. But the analogy to an exchange yeah. for people who advocate exactly. for congestion, that's wrong. Yeah, that's this is great. something else. Yeah, it's great. Uh, so that leaves us, or me anyway, you can speak for yourself. That leaves me with the challenge of, okay, you're so smart. You're so uh, highfalutin about your uh, principles with respect to a congestion tax. What do we do about the fact that there's traffic in a city? Because when people say, oh, we need to widen the roads, I always say, well, you know, when you do that, you just encourage people to live closer to the city or more people to move there. That might be good. That's a very complicated calculus. You could try to make it, right? But it's not obvious that that is an improvement. It could be, but it's not obvious that it is. Uh, and it's the improvements in terms of time savings tend to be short-lived, similarly with public transportation. Let's build more public transportation. Well, that has a short-run effect. But eventually, it encourages people to live near where the stations are, and that then crowds up other roads around there. And it, if it frees up people from the main roads, more people move in to be able to use the main roads. And you can say, well, that's good because there are more people in the city enjoying the benefits of the city. And that's true, which, which is good, which is why sometimes you should build roads or you should build tra- public transportation. But it's a cost-benefit analysis. But the standard economist answer of, well, we just need to tax the roads, to me, is unacceptable and false. Uh, it's not morally obvious that taxing roads is a good thing, but it, it does then leave us into put us into no man's land without an easy solution. What are your thoughts on that? I have a friend, uh, Jason Sheppers, who works on congestion pricing uh, for the state of Texas and at a couple of universities in Texas. And I, I asked him just that question because I was confused myself that, all right, you're so smart, what should we do? And his claim is that New York is the city in the United States that's closest to having a congestion tax make sense. At some point, if you have enough congestion, it might be that you want to use this blunt instrument. But in fact, most of the time, most people pay the full average cost of being on the road. And the general equilibrium effects, which is what the fancy way of saying what you said, that people will take into account the, the, the costs of having to commute. And they'll make location decisions that are based on that. Well, since that's true, the congestion tax is not an improvement. We're probably better off saying that this we have a plan for the way that the – and by plan, I mean we have an announcement about this is the way that roads are going to be for the future so people can predict. They make location decisions. And, yes, they pay then the amount of uh, – 
waiting costs that are involved in traffic. Congestion, there's no evidence that congestion pricing is an improvement in the way that it's often advocated for. And I have to admit, I was surprised at that conclusion. I had just always accepted the economist's idea, well, it'd be better if we priced for it. Now, let's there, there is one caveat to that. If it were possible to have private roads, and I think this is an interesting question. It's too big to raise at the very end of our podcast, but why are roads public goods in the first place? Public goods are have the two properties that they're rival in consumption, non-rival in consumption, and uh, non-excludable in uh, provision. That is, it's difficult, it's expensive for me to charge you to use it. And if you use some of it, there's no reduction in the amount available for someone else. Neither one of those things is true for roads anymore. So might private roads sort of unexpectedly be an alternative? So instead of public roads with congestion pricing, private roads, and like you said, we'll just build another, on top of Fifth Avenue, we'll build another road <laughs> that's that's 50 feet up and, okay, that's we're, we're making stuff up. But Private roads might be a solution, and a number of places have done that. The, the Toronto sold off one of its central arteries to a private company. Maybe it hasn't worked out very well, but the the dynamic pricing mechanisms where you, you're able to charge something where you're covering the average rather than trying to focus on getting the right margin might be an answer. So I think that that's not a very satisfactory answer. That's the best thing that I could come up with. I've changed my mind about uh, congestion taxes, I think they're a bad idea. Yeah, I, and I, I don't want to go too far on that point. I, I, I would say they're not a good idea based on the standard arguments that people usually make, quote, they're efficient or there's a negative externality. Again, the, the real I, th- I think the reason the intuition breaks down for the <clears throat> economists in the audience is that usually a neg- negative externality is me imposing costs on everyone else um, and not taking into account. The driving is everybody's imposing the costs on each other, and it's not the same. It just doesn't go through the way it normally would. Uh, when I tell economists that that uh, congestion tax makes drivers worse off, they always laugh, oh, you didn't do it right. Because we always are in a case where I impose an externality on someone, pollution, say. Well, then the people who are who are breathing the air are better off. Yeah, they are. It's not the same kind of – it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Not the same. It's not analogous. I think that's that's one point to make. But coming back to your point about uh, about private roads, I think I think you ultimately get into the same challenge there because of the existence of transaction costs. And 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 I'll say what I what I mean by that. I if we took the uh, the Beltway, which is the uh, the four ninety five that goes around the city of Washington, which is horribly congested numerous times during the day, sometimes on a Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock even, but certainly with great regularity at rush hour on weekdays. We said, we're going to sell this to a, we're gonna sell this to a private person, uh, a private entity, and we're going to let them put a, a toll on it. Well, they would put a toll on it for sure because it's cost-effective because of technology. So to get on the road, you'd have to have the box or the easy pass or whatever it was, and then they'd charge, and they'd be able to extract money from all of us who've made our decisions already about where we live and – and to get around, and they would make a lot of money off of it. And they would presumably – they would set the fee. I think this is true. We'd have to look, think about this more, but I think it's a result, standard result. They set the fee so there wouldn't be congestion. So at times, they would charge all the time, but they'd particularly charge a lot when it was high demand, say rush hour times, the morning and evening, when people are normally going or coming back from work. Well, 
that's going to end up being efficient <laughs> because if they sold that to the highest bidder, people would pay a lot for the privilege to extract money from drivers. But we all understand that wouldn't be a nice thing. It wouldn't be a good thing. It wouldn't be attractive, uh, even if it were true that it got rid of traffic because of the opportunity to dynamically price. And even if you say, well, it's true that drivers are worse off, but look at all the money the government got from the auction. They can use that money to compensate the people who are worse off. Well, they could in theory, but most of them won't be able to do that in a way that will actually work. If you start thinking, well, they'll, I don't even want to explain why it's hard to do, but it's hard to do. So it seems to me that that the fundamental challenge is that getting from place to place, because you can't build 50 roads on top of each other at the same, second road isn't as easy to build as the first. It's it has to be above the first one. It has to has higher costs, and it's going to be ugly. So it, it, there's no attractive – my conclusion to this is that I think you just have to live with the fact that when a lot of people want to live near each other, there's going to be congestion. And there's no way that – as smart as we are as economists, we're somewhat smart. We can't, quote, solve that problem through pricing or private ownership, the standard ways we solve all the other problems. It's just the fact that there's a bunch of people trying to live near each other, and they, they pile up. And there are ways to make it a little bit better. I, I, I'm I'm open to the possibility that HOV lanes maybe are an improvement, or maybe some. It's a possible that a congestion tax could be a good thing. But you and I would be the first to point out that there's no reason to think the government's going to set the prices in a way that are going to lead to efficiency. It is just a tax. So once you say it's a tax, the level of the tax is going to be set by the political process, not by the engineers who've somehow solve that credible set of informational challenges you, you mentioned earlier. I, I'm afraid there's no way around that. And so, I mean, I, I raise private roads partly tongue-in-cheek because one of the tests I always propose to people is, well, you, they, they, they have some idea about this is a way that markets are failing and I could do it better. All right, why don't you do it? You should start one yourself. There's a tremendous profit opportunity. <laughs> As far as I know, there are no examples of major cities where a private company has come in and said, you know, we are going to pay all the costs. We're going to borrow the money. I'd be interested if readers know any of these, but we're going to borrow the money. We're going to build a road and then we're going to and it's an alternative to the existing road structure. And then we're going to charge for it. So the, it, I don't think that private roads in the usual sense are actually viable. So while I changed my mind about congestion tax, it might still be the best solution that we have from a bunch of imperfect ones, recognizing all of the difficulties that we've brought up. But it, it, you might very well persuade me that a congestion tax that works in a way that I, we haven't yet specified might be the best thing that we could do. My guest today has been Mike Munger. Mike, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Always a pleasure, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>